I think my earliest experiences with the Lord were when I was at your age and younger. You know, I, um, I was five when I gave my life to the Lord. And I know that you guys are not five. But, <laughs> but I was five when I gave my life to the Lord. But I remember being 16 when I uh, read um, a mere Christianity. And then my Christianity went from being just like something other people have said to something that, man, I, I think I believe this because I think I understand how it's true. And uh, I remember being around that same age when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, and I remember going to youth camps. I remember God moving in my heart. Um, part of my first experiences were with the Lord were sensing the presence of the Lord through worship and recognizing how God would um, give me hope and peace and anchor me um, when I was worshiping the Lord. And it was because his presence was there. And that made me just want to be there in his presence all the more often. I, I, I remember reading books uh, like uh, Face to Face by Jesse Penn Lewis. My mom forced me to read it. And, uh, and, and one of the things that the Lord really ministered to me through it was, well, I've had this much experience with the Lord, and there was a longing in my heart for, for that sense of, man, everything is right in God's presence. I just want to be there in his presence. I just wanted to be at church. I wanted to be worshiping the Lord. I wanted to sense his spirit and his presence and worship. And I wanted to be closer to him. And I read books like that that kind of basically said you could be as close to God as you want to be. I said, what do you mean? You could, you could look at him face to face like a man speaks to his friend. I, I, and, I, and I long for that kind of relationship with the Lord. I, I would read stuff like God telling Moses, you can't see my face and live. And I would think, well, that's a gr I'm fine with dying that way. I would just want to see his face and die. Whatever happened to Chris? I think he saw the face of God, and then he died. <laughs> I think that's a great way to go, you know? And, and, uh, and, I, and I would pray for that. I, deal, I still, too, sometimes pray, Lord, you know, that's a great way to go. Just have so much closeness to the Lord, intimacy to the Lord, that I see the face of the Lord, and then I die. Um, I mean, you know, I, I hope that I get to see my kids grow up, but, you know, that's, I'd love to, I'd love to go out with a bang, you know, but um, I don't know if you make a bang when, you know, you see his face and then you, you die, but that'd be interesting. Anyway, as I was praying about sharing with you guys and what the Lord was putting on, on, on my heart for you, um, the Lord kept bringing um, this passage of scripture to mind over and over again. Um, and it's been awesome kind of focusing on it. My desire would be that I would not get in the way of what it is that God wants to do or say. And um, so that's my prayer. Before we go into Luke chapter 15, well, let's read verse one, uh, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And if you look at it in the Greek, uh, a lot of what it's saying is that these were uh, tax collectors. It says that. But uh, the reason why people didn't like tax collectors was because the, the Romans had hired Jewish people to collect taxes on the Jewish people. And they didn't give them pay. Uh, they, they lived off of whatever they, whatever they took. Uh, basically, being a tax collector gave you permission to ask for as much as you wanted in taxes. The, government, the Roman government said, this is how much we expect, and anything extra you take, you keep. So then a tax collector could come in, and he's got to ask for one gold coin, but he looks at your shoes and says, I'll take 15 gold coins. So oh, 15 gold coins, that seems pretty hefty. 
you got no coins left. And then he would give one gold coin to Rome and he'd keep the other 14 for himself. And, and basically, they could set their own price. I mean, imagine a job where you can set your own price, your own salary. So tax collectors were wealthy. Tax collectors were also very hated. Um, the Jewish people kind of viewed them as traitors to their own people. Because they're working for the Roman government, the Roman government had conquered them. And then it also says that also sinners came. But if you look at it in the Greek, it, it speaks of notorious sinners. People that were famous for being sinful. I mean, in a small... I mean, we don't live in a small town. We live in a big city. But you guys, youth group, that's a small group. And you can have people that are, that are notorious for some things, that are famous for other things. You can have like a famous Rochambeau player. You know, you can have someone, oh, that, that guy, that lady, they know what they're doing. When, when they play, you know, soccer, when they play football, they are the best. You fear them. You know, you got a reputation. But then these people, they had a reputation for sinning. They had a reputation for doing the kind of things that would be shameful and embarrassing. But they drew near to him, to him, to Jesus, to hear him. And that boggles my mind. They drew near to Jesus to hear him. Now, the, there was a point in Jesus' ministry when the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to figure out who he was. And they saw him once heal on the Sabbath. And they said, no, 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 there's no way this guy's the Messiah. How is he healing people on the Sabbath? Jesus would get angry with them. What do you mean healing people on the Sabbath? Of course I'm healing people on the Sabbath. There's people that have needs on the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. If you come into a, a church service on a Saturday or on a Friday and you're broken and Jesus sees you, he's going to look at you in your heart and he's going to want to address you and heal you and restore you. If your heart's been broken, he's going to want to talk to you and minister to you and heal you because that's his heart and his nature. And if other people try to stop him, he would get upset with that. He would get upset with them. What do you mean you're going to stop me from healing this woman that, that is a hunchback? She's been bent over for 20 years. She can't stand up straight. And you're going to get upset with me because I want to heal her today? I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Today's her day of healing. You're going to get upset with me because it's a Saturday and this man with a withered hand, how much shame has he gone through in his whole life? And I, want to, I see he's here today. I'm here today. This is his day. Guy with the withered hand, come over here. Stick out your hand. And he sticks out his hand and he's healed. And the scribes and Pharisees were angry with him. But the people, the regular people, they couldn't stop listening to him. Because what they heard was someone that spoke with authority. They heard someone that when he read through the scriptures, he spoke to them like he wrote the scriptures. Because he was the scriptures. He knew what it meant. He knew how it applied into people's lives. And he spoke like that to people. And so people said, I got to hear this guy. They were astonished at his hearing. There was another time uh, at his preaching, because he spoke as one with authority. There was another time when the Pharisees, who were angry with him, sent Roman soldiers to go uh, capture him. And they came back empty-handed. And these Roman Gentile soldiers had heard him preach for the first time. And they said, no one's ever spoken like him before. Can you imagine if you were a Pharisee and these Roman soldiers, their job it was, it was their job to stand there in the synagogue and listen to you preach. And you're angry at Jesus. You send them to go, you know, capture Jesus and come back. And they say, 
We didn't arrest him because he, this guy talks like nobody else. Have you ever heard him speaking? He's amazing. The grace that he speaks with, the, 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 the love. But those in the context of what's happening here, that's not what he's talking. Those aren't the words that he's using. They're not drawing near to him to hear him because of his grace in his speech or his authority in his speech. They're drawing near to hear him because in chapter 14, verse 25, it says, A great multitude went with him, and he turned to them, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he can't be my disciple. And he's giving them this standard that's up here. He is not telling them literally to hate everyone. But he is telling them that they should love God so much that in comparison to the love they have for God, every other love that they have in this world would be a hate. I mean, that's a, a huge difference, that God is way up here, and then everybody else in my life is somewhere back there. But I'm going to seek the Lord and honor the Lord. He's not telling them this because in other passages he tells them to honor their parents. He tells them that they should be respectful, that they should be obedient, that they should heed the law and the commandments. He tells, uh, we read in other passages of scripture, that you should care for your family or you're worse than an infidel. So he's not saying that you should literally hate them, but he is saying you should love God more. You should love God more. You should put God above and beyond all that. And so then he gives them this standard. And whoever doesn't bear his cross and come after me, he can't be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower, and a cross was an implement of crucifixion, execution, it's like, you know, you'd take your firing squad with you, you know, something like that. But if you wanted to come and build a tower, wouldn't you sit down first and count the cost, whether you have enough to finish it? Lest after it's laid the foundation, you're not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock you, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king doesn't sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Like, if you've got, uh, if you've scheduled out a fight with somebody, you've got to think, can I actually beat this guy? <laughs> you know, before you go out to fight him, you think, can I beat this guy? Or should I, maybe I should, you know, make things right with this guy. If you're a king and you're going out to war, you should think, am I going to win this war? Maybe I should try to get peace with this guy. Count the cost, Jesus is saying. Think about it. Or else, while the other's still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whoever of you that doesn't forsake all that he has can't be my disciple. Can't be my disciple. Now, I, I'm emphasizing that because Jesus is laying the standard up here. He is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a Christian, think about it. Consider it. Weigh out your options. Think about whether it, what it's worth to you. Because it's going to cost you everything. Now, I'm here, right? I'm 40. I got saved when I was 5. That's about 35 years. God has been good to me. It has cost me everything. But it has been worth everything that it's cost me. Everything that he's ever asked of me, he's always either showed me that it wasn't as valuable as I thought it was, or he's reimbursed it a hundred times over. 
But that I've learned that over experience. He always seems to find something to ask of me that I didn't know he was going to ask of, you know? Oh, man, I didn't, I didn't know I had to give that. Okay, I, oh, I kind of don't want to give this one, you know? The Lord says, well, let me know when you're ready. Oh, okay, well, oh, Lord, I just want you, Lord. You know, here and you give, you pass it over to the Lord. But the reason why I want to give those verses in context is because there's a standard that's being put up here. God is really saying you got to think about what, this, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, what it's going to cost you. And then he says in the next chapter that the worst sinners, they came near to hear him. Those are the words that they came near to hear. That in the group of people, much larger than this, as he said, the standards up here, it's going to cost you everything that you have. These were the ones that said, I got to hear Jesus. I, I want to give up everything for him. I want to let go of my life. Whatever I have. The notorious sinner. The tax collector. The heathen. The worst of the worst. They said, give up my life? <laughs> sure. I'd gladly give up my life. And they drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, they complained. And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that word complained there, it means they murmured, they complained throughout the crowd. It's like a group like this, you know, you got one or two saying, look at these people drawing closer to Jesus. Doesn't he know that this guy's a famous sinner? That she's a horribly bad sinner? I mean, if this guy was a prophet, surely he would not be hanging out with fill in the blank. This guy, look, he, not only do they come to him, but he receives them. And then he sits down to eat with them. Man, I, I read that and I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad he receives sinners because I'm a sinner. And maybe you're here and maybe you're a sinner. Maybe you think, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to come to Jesus. But he was famous for receiving people that recognized that they were not good enough. He was famous for, well known for, even criticized for, being willing to forgive people that thought they were not good enough, that knew they weren't good enough, that had a bad reputation. And so the Pharisees are giving him a hard time. They're stumbled at his mercy. They're kind of like, kind of like Jonah. Jonah was a prophet that God had called to speak a word of judgment to the Assyrians. God told Jonah to tell them they were going to be judged. And Jonah hated the Assyrians. And Jonah thought, well, if I go tell them that they're going to be judged, they're going to repent. And then God's going to forgive them. I know God, that sneaky guy, if they say they're sorry, he's going to forgive them. I'm not going to tell them. I don't want to tell them. And so because he knew God was merciful, it's the same thing with these Pharisees that would bring sick people in to the temple when Jesus was preaching on a Sabbath. They wanted to trap him. They'd say, you know what's going to trap Jesus? His mercy. He's compassionate. He's gracious and merciful and compassionate. And if he sees a hurting and sick person, he's going to do something about it. Maybe you're here and you're hurting. Man, Jesus was known for 
healing the hurt, for restoring, for giving hope where there was no hope. And so they gave him a hard time for it. They said, this guy receives sinners and he eats with them. And they struggled with his mercy. But all throughout scripture, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, Jesus said, or God said, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? God said even back in Ezekiel, I don't enjoy judging the wicked. I don't enjoy them dying in judgment. I want to see people repent. I don't enjoy seeing you in your sin. I want to see you repent because I know your sin will produce pain. Your sin will produce death. I don't want to see that happen to you. I want to see repentance so that you could be blessed, so that you could be whole and healed. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should die or perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Pharisees are going through the crowd, just being like, this guy receives sinners. This guy receives sinners. Ah, he eats with them. This guy's terrible. He hangs out with sinful people, and he eats with them. And so it says, verse 3, he spoke this parable to them. This parable, these parables we're about to read, were, were spoken to Pharisees for them to hear it, for them to listen, for them to learn. And so he said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And then he comes home and he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So he gives him this parable. I, was, I wanted to read through it and then come back to it. But there's a lot of stuff in this parable. He's going to give three of them. And there's going to be three words that are repeated in each one of those parables. It's lost, found, and rejoicing. In all three parables, you're going to see lost, found, and rejoicing. They're all lost for different reasons. They're all found by Jesus. But here you've got um, this parable. Just a couple of things on this parable. I, I really want to get to the last one. But a couple of things on this parable is one of my kind of favorite pastimes <clears throat> whenever I find it is if you ever see like YouTube videos uh, of like uh, sheep being rescued um, because it's just, I don't know why, I just really enjoy uh, seeing it. Um, there's one where uh, there's a guy that is sticking his arm into, into what looks like the ground, like there's nothing there but a mound of earth, and apparently there's a hole that you can't see on the camera, and he's reaching down, and there's another guy kind of holding his waist, it's about like 15 seconds, and then he pulls out a leg, and then he pulls out a whole sheep that was inside of a hole, and, uh, and I thought, what did the, how in the world did that sheep get into the hole? And then he releases the sheep, and the sheep does like five jumps of happiness, and then gets their neck stuck in a gate. And I just thought, man, that's, that's so, that speaks to me. Um, and then there's another one where uh, they pull it out of a trench, 
and the sheep just hops along in joy and falls into the trench like 40 feet down the, down the, the camera shot. And I thought, man, I, as, a, as a shepherd, what a great video to just watch and be like, it's going to be okay. This happens all the time. But um, I like watching these sheep, these, uh, sheep videos. Nowadays, we have kind of a good reputation. I, I mean, I don't know. Do you know any shepherds? Anybody have any shepherds they know personally? So nobody knows any shepherds. In those days, it was not a good reputation that shepherds have. Uh, shepherds were not uh, allowed. You wouldn't allow a shepherd to marry your daughter. That's like a, a terrible reputation. Um, you wouldn't allow a, entrust a shepherd with your house. You know, those guys, they steal stuff, you know. Uh, shepherds did not have a good reputation. So when Jesus kind of says to these Pharisees, look, if one of you guys was a shepherd, they'd be like, what do you mean if one of us was a shepherd? We're not stinking shepherds. We're Pharisees. But he says, if one of you was a shepherd. Another thing that's worth noting is, if you were like an average shepherd, you'd have about 15 sheep, 10 to 15 sheep. If you were a wealthy, rich shepherd, you'd have 40 sheep. If you had 100 sheep, this is not an average shepherd. This is like a shepherd that is watching the sheep of the whole community. There's a small town, and this one shepherd is watching everybody's sheep that night. And this was something that would kind of regularly happen. Also, side note, if you're interested in looking up a she uh, buying a sheep, they're about $250. So if you guys, <laughs> so I was like, I wonder how much a sheep costs. But uh, then he's, so he says he's, he's making this connection with them in something that they would understand. And he says, if, if one of you had 99 sheep, just 100 sheep that are, at your, are your responsibility, and one of them is gone, wouldn't you leave the other 99 in the wilderness and look for the one that's missing? I, I don't know if you know this, but when a lamb separates itself from the rest of the flock, it gets kind of lost and disoriented and doesn't know where to go. It just lies down. It lies down and stays there. <laughs> And so anything else that comes will come and eat it. It, it doesn't go looking for the shepherd. It doesn't sniff around. It doesn't have any kind of special survival skills. It just stays there until it dies. And so here this shepherd says, I've, I've missed one. I've got to go find it. And the last two things I'll say about being a shepherd before we kind of move on in this is there's a famous pastor from Scotland who grew up with a lot of sheep. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. And he knew all this stuff about sheep, and you can listen to all his teachings and, uh, about sheep. But something that's really, uh, at some point, he said, taking care of sheep is so hard. Who would ever want to be a shepherd? And then he said, he had a realization. These people love sheep. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's wrong with these people, but shepherds, they just love sheep. They've learned to love and care for each and every individual one of them. And the other and last example is Henry Ironside, another famous preacher. Um, he told the story of staying with a friend of his that owned a, a, a sheep, I don't know what you call it, like a ranch or something. He had thousands of sheep. And he was there with his friend that was very wealthy. And they were sitting on the porch. And at some point in the evening, his friend said, Henry, come with me. We're going to get in, our, in my pickup. And they get in the pickup. And he says, what's wrong? He says, I can hear, I was sitting there and I heard a lamb crying. And so they're looking and they're looking and they're looking amongst these thousands of sheep for the one crying lamb. And, and, and at some point, after a couple hours, Henry Ironside said, it's just one lamb. Why are you going through all this work? We're never going to find him. He said, Henry, if, if I don't find that lamb, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I can't go to sleep thinking that one lamb's going to be eaten by a wolf. 
And, and you look at a passage like this and you say, that's somebody that loves sheep. And in a story like that, the, the, the shepherd is Jesus and the sheep is us, right? So it's a flock that belongs to Christ. We're part of his flock. We're one of his sheep. And he's of the sort of shepherd that he, he notices the one that's lost. The one that's maybe in a room like this. I think there's over 100 people. Is there over 100 people in this room? Close to 100 people. He knows exactly how many people are in this room. And if there's one person here that thinks that nobody knows that they're here, nobody cares about them, nobody's aware of them, Jesus is the kind of shepherd that says, I know that one. I care about that one. I brought them here so that I could speak to them because I love them. It might be you. And Jesus is a sword. He has the kind of heart that says, guys, you just wait right here. I'm going to go find that one. I'm going to go find that one. And each and every one of us is, is God considers us worthy of his undivided attention, of his exclusive undivided attention, that he'll go after us. And then it says that when he finds the sheep, he puts the sheep on his shoulders. I've never put a sheep on my shoulders. I've put other animals in my arms. I can tell you sometimes they scratch, they bite. I was in a paintball uh, something fight, I guess. It was in like one of these rinks that has paintball shooting things. I don't know what they're called. I've done it. I just don't know what to call it. What to call it. I know my like coolness level was here, and now it's like down here. But uh, I was there, and I'm. Uh, I think it was for somebody's uh, something, some celebration for somebody, birthday party. It's not really relevant. I'm sitting behind a bunker and being shot at with paintballs, and I look over, and a parakeet lands right next to me. And I'm like, well, that's a parakeet. It's going to die here. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is where the parakeet dies. And so it, I don't know what, I, in just a half a minute, I grabbed it, grabbed the parakeet with my hand. It didn't move, which I was surprised by. I didn't think that was going to happen. And uh, I stood up, got hit several times with a paintball gun, with paintball, paintballs. And I kind of walked out as the parakeet was biting and scratching my hand. And I don't remember what I did with it. I think I put it in a box and gave it to somebody. Hey, here's a parakeet. Anybody want a parakeet? Uh, happy birthday. Anyway, if you grab animals, they scratch, they bite, they kick. They don't know better. And so here the shepherd gladly picks up this lost, erring sheep and puts the sheep on his shoulders. I mean, he's, that's, that's intimate care, isn't it? That's personal. That's willing to get dirty. That's willing to get kicked and scratched and hit, and you put it close to you in your arms. And then he walks it back to its place. And does he walk it back begrudgingly? Does he walk it back being like, ah, oh, this dumb sheep, like Fred Flintstone grumbling all the way back? No. He's rejoicing. I found my sheep. He's so happy he calls his friends. Guys. We should be celebrating. I found the sheep, the one that was lost. I brought him home. He's safe now. And he says, Jesus says, that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, I don't know who needs no repentance, right? Romans chapter 3, it says, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the grace of God. We all need repentance. But for the sake of illustration here. He says, I, there's more celebration in heaven 
for that one sinner that has repented. Why? Because their life has been purchased back. Because in heaven, there's nobody in heaven thinking, man, I wish I would have gotten to sin. Ah, oh, that stinks. I, I lost, my, lost my opportunity to sin. Because sin is horrible. Sin kills you. It's poisonous. It destroys you from the inside. It kills all the relationships and you have with people around you. It, it, it makes you useless until it destroys you. It's a parasite. It's a disease. So who would be celebrating that they have no sin? Oh, we should all be celebrating that, that we've been freed or delivered. But think about this. It's not something that should make you feel entitled to more. It's the bare minimum. You should be living without sin. Right? Shouldn't we be repenting and surrendering it to the Lord? It's the bare minimum. But also from another perspective, he's saying that there's joy over one sinner who repents. And he's trying to help these Pharisees saying, guys, you need repentance. But you should be celebrating. This person's live, alive again. This person's living They've been set free. They've been delivered from the hell they were bound towards. Heaven's celebrating. Why aren't you celebrating? Your attitude's messed up. Over one sinner who repents. It's not like receiving people who are going to continue in their sin and celebrating that. No. People were saying, you know what? I'm sick and tired of my sin. I'm done with it. Oh, let's celebrate. Or what woman Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search it carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which was lost. And this is more than just ten silver coins. You know, there's value to ten silver coins. But in the time, traditionally, they would have the, a bride would have a headpiece that would have 10 silver coins. Or sometimes she'd wear it as a necklace. Or she'd wear it sometimes around her waist. It was kind of like their wedding ring. This special, you know, I've got my wedding ring here if I could take it off. Hey, I'm not, I'm not too fat to take it off yet. But um, at some point, I'm assuming at some point I will be. Um, but if you lose that, that's a big deal. It's not just about the value of the metal in the ring. It's a value of the promises that are represented by the ring. The wedding ring that I gave my wife was my grandmother's. And it has meaning to it. It has significance to it. And for her to lose it, that would be hard for her. She'd be looking everywhere for it until she finds it. Just tear everything apart. Let's find it. And here this woman, she has equally, she has this thing that means something to her. There's an oath and a promise and there's feelings and emotions behind this. And that is how Jesus feels about his relationship with you. Right? Jesus says, I love her. I love him. I've, I've lost him. I got to find him. I got to find her. Let's tear everything up until I find her. Until I find him and bring him back to where he should be. Because of the emotions and the heart that he has. He's willing to take upon himself the burden of restoration, right? Restoration is hard. It takes time and work and labor goes into restoration. And Jesus says, I'll take that on my shoulders. 
I'll go into the intentional labor and careful work to try to help and save just one who's lost. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me. I found the peace which I've lost. Verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. And this from heaven's perspective. One sinner, not just one sinner, because there's no such thing as just one sinner. Have you ever been in church and there's an altar call? That, you know, if anybody wants to raise their hand to accept Jesus as their Savior, and then there's like one hand go up? God is not up in heaven saying, ah, oh, man, it was just one. It was just, oh, it's just, that one, it's just that one guy. I think he might have raised his hand once before. That's not how God sees it. Heaven is celebrating. All the angels are throwing a party because one person got saved. And if you're here and you've never gotten saved, I got to tell you, there's a whole bunch of angels that would love to celebrate tonight. They would love to have a party. They would love to see you surrender your life to the Lord, count the cost, and say, I want to go all in with Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to give the rest of my life to him. And the angels will celebrate it. They won't think, oh, well, they're just in youth camp. No, they're going to be celebrating it just like they would anywhere else. Because your life is valued, right? Isn't that the purpose of every one of these parables? Is to say, guys, you're not valuing the lives that these people have. I love them. I care for them deeply. I, the, the, the issues and struggles that they have and that they're going through are incredibly important to them and to me. And I want to help and save and restore them. And it's, it's worth it. It's worth it, guys. It's worth it for you to surrender your life to the Lord. And then he tells this parable. And this one really is one that really touched my heart. And I think it's really incredible when you look at this. Before I get to this parable, the other two, the other two things that were lost were lost for different reasons. Um, the sheep was lost because sheep are dumb. You know, in the old King James, it says that they're brutish. Uh, the, the new King James, it says they're stupid. And so, and so, you know, the word stupid, you know, is there in the Bible. Um, uh, but, you know, sheep are dumb. They get lost. And sometimes it's just because of dumb mistakes that they make. I've, I'm dumb. I've, I've made dumb mistakes and gotten lost sometimes. It's, it's funny, when I got here, I was trying to get here earlier, and I went down the wrong way, and then I got lost, and I got a map, then I, got, I lost the map, then I went to a different way. I don't think this is the right way. And then George called me, and he found me. I was lost, and I was found. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm teaching about this. And, um, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm probably like the sheep that was lost because he was dumb. Uh, the coin was lost by accident, wasn't it? It wasn't on purpose. You know, and, and, and maybe you're here and you're lost, and it might be for any one of several different reasons. Maybe you've made mistakes and decisions and choices that you regret, and now you're lost. Maybe they're choices that were made for you. It, had, it wasn't your fault at all, and now you're lost. Jesus is looking for you. He, he brought you here because he's looking for you. He's trying to find you. He's trying to salvage you, pull you back. And then you have this son, and he said, a certain man had two sons. I have one son and one daughter. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of goods that falls to me. And you got to understand that this was perfectly legal. In the time and in the culture, it was perfectly legal for any one of the sons to go to the father and say, 
whatever your inheritance is when you die, can I have that now in advance? But no one would do that. Because culturally, it was so offensive. It was so disrespectful. And Jesus is telling this story in such a way that to anyone hearing it in that time, they would immediately not like this younger son. He did what? He said that to his father? That's because, you know, just to think of the disrespect of that, saying everything you've ever worked for, all your life, everything you've ever uh, spent your, 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 your life on, I want a third of it. Right? I want it right now. I just don't want you. Can I just have the money and not have a relationship with you? I just want, I just want my portion. <clears throat> As the younger son, he would be owed a third of it at the death of his father. But his father, to me, incredible graciousness, he freely and abundantly and willingly gives it all to him. Yeah, sure. I'll sell it all, and I'll give you a third. It'll belong to you. And you, you know that your father is that generous? Your heavenly father is that generous and gracious? And, and, and this is after incredible disrespect, right? Incredible lack of love and care for him as a dad. And then it says, then he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son, he gathered all together, cashed out, journeys, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions on prodigal living. So not only does he get it all, but then he goes off and spends it on nothing, on just fritters it away on garbage. You know, I want to collect all the sum total of my father's life and work and investment in me. I'm going to take all that. Then I'm going to go and spend it on the slot machines. You just give it to a casino. Just get involved in sexual immorality. I'm going to just lose myself in sin. I'm going to burn it away in something silly. You know, just, I'm going to go to an arcade and just spend all of it. It's going to be an incredible night, you know. <laughs> and then it's all gone. I mean, 15, 25, 30, 40, 50 years of work. This is what you offended and disrespected your father for? To have one big party. And so the people listening to this are immediately going to think, this guy's terrible. I'd hate to have a son like this. Oh, what a horrible guy. But when he had spent it all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. I, this is one of those things that like when I was studying this to share it with you, I found out something I didn't know. If you look it up in the Greek, and this is from Kenneth Woost's translation. Who's Kenneth Woost? Doesn't really matter. But uh, he said, he translated it like this. And having proceeded, he forced himself upon one of the citizens of that country who was unwilling to hire him and only took him after persistent entreaty. This prodigal son didn't have a friend. He goes to somebody he knew and says, can't you please hire me? Nah, I don't want to hire you. You're good for nothing. Oh, but I thought we were friends. Didn't we party together? Didn't I pay for your drinks? Didn't I give you everything? No, nah, get out of here. You're a lazy bum. I don't want to hire you. Come on, please, 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 please. Okay, okay, fine. Go feed my pigs. A job that no one would want to have. He says, go do the worst menial job. Go feed the pigs. And then he didn't even want to pay them. 
wouldn't even give him food to eat. Guys, I don't know who you're joining yourself to, right? This guy joined himself to this man from this far country. But you got to choose your friends carefully. The kinds of friends that you choose, you're choosing the people that will influence you. You're choosing the people that will determine the course of your life. You choose a good friend, that will get you through incredible difficulty. That will bless you tremendously. You choose a bad friend, you're going to have nothing. And, and, you know, a friend, a good friend is there for you in adversity. A good friend will tell you the truth when you need to hear it, even when you don't want to hear it. I've, I have lost friendships. I have lost family members from just trying to tell them the truth and, and taking emotional blows, right? You get hit. Well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. It's nothing else I can say but the truth and love. You know, I love you, but it's what the Bible says. That's why. So you choose your friends carefully, guys. Because then when the need comes, when the challenge hits, when it's time to pay the toll, you look around and all your friends are gone. They left you with the check. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says that we shouldn't be unequally yoked. We use that for marriage and relationships, but... It's also for friendships. It's also for business relationships. Should it be tying yourself to somebody that's not, not seeking the Lord? The imagery there is you've got two oxen, and you would always take one strong ox and tie him to a weaker ox. But you don't want to take a strong, experienced ox and tie it to a baby, to a calf, because then that strong ox is just going to be dragging that calf around. Now the strong ox can't do what the strong ox can do, because he's dragging around a calf. I did a three-legged race once. I don't remember what grade it was. It was, it was under sixth grade. This is, youth camp just brings back all my, all my childhood trauma. But I, I, was, I, I think I was in sixth grade, and I was doing a three-legged race with someone about this tall. And I think it was like this. It was like unequally yoked. At some point, I was just dragging this kid. Uh, uh, and I think I still got se second place. But, uh, but it was just like dragging one kid, you know, because I, I, was, I was this tall. I was this tall. He was about this tall. I don't know who chose that, that partner. for. I didn't choose it for myself. But uh, to, be, to be tied to someone who doesn't have their heart in it, isn't there to seek the Lord, isn't really wanting to do anything righteous, whether it's in a relationship with uh, someone of the opposite sex pursuing marriage or whether it's in a relationship of a friendship or a business relationship. You guys got any businesses going? Anyway, um, you shouldn't be unequally yoked because at some point you're going to find that you're dragging that other person. At best case scenario, I remember uh, talking to somebody once that I had known years ago and then I saw on Facebook they were deciding to get unequally yoked with a, an unbeliever. And uh, they, they had met them online. They were about 15 years, uh, the dude was about 15 years older and uh, he, was not a, he was an atheist. And uh, I was like telling them, what are you doing with your life? You know, you can do whatever you want, but you're going to destroy your life. And, uh, and they, they kind of, they called me. I had never had a call from them before. And they said, what, what do you, what, what's, you know, I'm, I'm pleading with them. Don't make this horrible decision. This is a terrible decision. And they said, what, what do you think is going to happen? I said, the best case scenario if you pursue and follow through with a relationship with this dude, the best case scenario 
is that you go through years of, of heartache and pain and hardship and he finally gets saved. But that's very unlikely. What's far more likely is that you're going to suffer and you're going to be in pain and hardship until you finally let go or relinquish your own faith. You know, you're, and they did that. They, they got into relationship. They, got, they relinquished their own faith for the sake of the guy. They gave up their faith in the Lord. And then they, the guy, they got divorced. So I'm like, well, it's all big old waste of years and decades of life and, and God's investment in their life. Anyways, I, sorry, I, that was about me. I went off on a tangent. Don't do that. Don't be unequally yoked. Enough about my problems. Verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. And so here they wouldn't even feed him with the food that the pigs would eat. And as he's there, it says, but when he came to himself, another translation, when he came to his senses, he's starving to death, working for no pay, not being able to eat the food that was, that was separated for the animals, being treated worse than a pig. And as he's sitting there, he thinks, the employees, the hired servants in my father's house are treated better than this. The people on the bottom rung of my father's house are treated better than I'm being treated right now. And he realizes, my father has always treated everyone better than I'm being treated right now. Maybe if I went to him and I asked him for mercy. But I can't show my face there. I mean, I've treated him terribly. Why, why would he ever look at me as a son? No, maybe not as a son. Maybe he, maybe he could hire me. Maybe I could prove myself a good hired servant in my father's house. He says, I will arise. He said, verse 17, then he came to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? They have food, and they have more food than they need. They, they throw out extra food. This was rare back then. But his father treated everyone in his household well. And he said, they were better off, and I'm here dying of hunger. I'm going to arise and go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, and he's preparing this kind of speech out in his head, in his heart, he says, Father, no, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he realizes, well, the first person I've sinned against is, is God. And when we sin, the person that pays the highest price for your sin is God. And then it's us. And then it's everybody else around us. But he knows who he needs to apologize to. And he says, this son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And I wonder if any, anybody feels like that here. Maybe you're not worthy. You don't, I don't, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy for Jesus to accept me at, these other people, they seem like they're holy. They seem like they're Christians. Like they've got their act together. I'm not worthy. Like, could you arise and go to your father? You could tell him that. 
I have conversations with people. I pray with people saying, I want to get right. I don't know what to do. Let's go to the Lord. He's your father. Go talk to him. Listen, in a room like this, I'm sure that there's people with great relationships with their great fathers. There's people here with terrible relationships with their terrible fathers. And there's people here with no, relation, no relationships with no fathers. I, I was raised without a father. My father was my heavenly father in heaven. And I'm so grateful for the grace and mercy that he's shown me. He's helped me to be a father when I didn't know what to be a father means. He's still teaching me how to be a father. But here you've got this son saying, I think, I know two things about my father. He's good. He treats the people in his household well. And he's merciful. (laughs) Maybe he'll forgive me. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. It's the same kind of thought process, the same kind of heart. If you feel you're not worthy to be called his son, come. He'll meet you where you're at. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. If there's something I could tell you, I can't speak for human fathers. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't have one. I am one. I'm a human father. I'm a human and I'm a father. I, I sometimes, I, don't, I love my kids. I don't always know if they know how much I love them. I love you guys. I do. There's a part of me that kind of looks at you guys and, and the same part of me that kind of loves Ben and Sky loves you. But it's an interesting experience to kind of sit back and sometimes see when your son, your daughter's, she's only 11 months, but when there's a break in the relationship, you just want it to be healed. You just want it to be healed. You can't wait for the relationship to be fixed. And as this son is coming back and he's got this speech rehearsed in his head, he's reciting it in his head as he walks all the way back, Father, I've sinned against heaven, sinned against you, not worthy to be called your son. Would you accept me as one of your hired servants? Father, you know, he's kind of going through this. His father has been looking in the direction that he last saw his son go. Has been just looking that way. That's where he went that way. I'm just looking that way. Is that him? I think that's him. And he takes off running to go find him. He takes off running. In this culture, old old men don't run. It's hard for me to run. (laughs) But here in this culture, he takes off. He humbles himself. He, He... dare I say, humiliates himself to tie up his robe around his waist and gird up his loins, and he goes running after his son. And when he sees him, he falls on his neck. And it says that in the Greek, it says he kissed him tenderly. And he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. He's so happy that his son, his daughter, is back. He doesn't even have the time to go through the speech. You know, 
He's already accepting it. But you know what the son says? I got to go through the speech. What I did was too wrong. I got I to gotta repent. I got to say I'm sorry. So, he, you know, I don't know if he's kind of like, Dad, come on, just a second. You're pulling him back, you know. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father stops him and calls his servants and says, bring out the best robe. Let's get the rings. Get the stately robe, the, the colorful one. Bring it here. All right, we're going to have a party tonight. My son's back. He doesn't even have the chance to say I'm not worthy to be called his son. This is the same son that disrespected him. So if you're, if you're wondering what his heart is towards you, right? God loves to forgive people. God loves to forgive people. He loves to show them mercy if there's repentance. He can't settle for half-hearted, you know, ah, I'm sorry I got caught. Ah, I don't like these consequences. If you want to get rid of this sin in your life, I got great news for you. God will meet you wherever you're at. He won't let you finish your speech. He'll forgive you. He will restore you. He will, not, he will make you a son in his house, a daughter in his house. He'll make you one of his sons, one of his daughters. He loves to forgive you. But you've got to be willing to come back. His son was lost because of his own choice. It was rebellion. He wanted and loved the things of this world, and he went after them. It was his choice. So in this parable, his son had to come back to him. Father didn't go out to find him, but he had to come back. And if that's you here, you need to come back. You need to make the choice. Your parents cannot make it for you. Your brother, your sister cannot make it for you. If you want a relationship with Jesus, you need to tell him. You need to talk to him, and you need him to answer you. And he will accept you. He will accept you. He will forgive you. He will restore you. But it needs to come from you. And if you've never done that, then you should do that here. It will be an amazing thing for you to come back and you've heard Jesus today. You've heard Jesus. He spoke to your heart. This isn't something that someone else told you. This is something that he told you. And he knows you and he loves you. But if you want him, you need to come to him. And you need to speak to him. And you'll find him to be gracious and you'll find him to be merciful to those who are willing. <sighs> Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Guys, in the Greek he says, this is the calf that we've prepared for just such an occasion as this. He's saying, we've been getting this calf ready. I mean, I didn't think, I never thought about this before, but it's true, isn't it? You, don't, you, you have a fatted calf because you took time to fatten it in advance. When did he start fattening this calf to have a big feast? This isn't like you go to Publix and buy a lechon, you know? This is like you got to feed that lechon to be worthy of eat, being eaten, you know? And so did he do that the moment his son left? Let's start fattening a calf for when he comes back. This is when he comes back, I want to be able to really celebrate. You know? But he's been preparing for his repentance, preparing for his return. And so he says, let's have this celebration. Let's eat. 
For my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to be merry. And now his older son. Oh wait, there was another son, isn't there? He's had two sons. The older son who is deserving of two-thirds of his inheritance. So he gave one-third to the younger son. This guy has already inherited two-thirds. But he comes home. And he's drawing near to the house, and he hears music and dancing in the Greek. It says, there's many musicians playing music in concert, and there's people dancing around in a circle. It's like, well, that's a big old party. What's going on, guys? You know, why is everybody celebrating? And a servant comes out and says, he called one of the servants, and asked him what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, because, and because he was received safe and sound, your father's killed the fatted calf. But he was livid. It, another translation put it this way. He flew into a rage that was the explosive outlet of a long-time resentment that had been smoldering in his chest. It's like He hears that and he blows up. He just totally loses it. You're t- for, for him? After he insulted my father that way, took everything and spent it on garbage? Now he comes back and what, you're just going to forgive him? You're going to receive him and celebrate? Nah, I'm not even going. I'm sitting here. <laughs> oh my goodness. What's been going on inside of this guy's heart? What's, what kind of bitterness and resentment? Self feeling like, I deserve better than this. I don't like how my father's treating me. It's not right. He's going to forgive him. And he sits down and refuses to come in. Were I the father, I would be so angry with the older son. He's, he's being a little baby outside in the house. He's like, well, lock the doors. He's sleeping outside tonight. But that's not what he does, is it? The father goes out to him. Now that, to me, is staggering mercy and grace. That's a, that's a dad that has, been, has a lot of experience dealing with petty people, sons. And so it says there, he, he called one of his servants and he said, so there's a verse 28, but he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out to him and pleaded with him. And he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and you have yet to give me one young goat, like a measly little goat. All I wanted was a goat. <laughs> it's like, oh man, you know, that I could kill and, and, and make merry and have a nice little party with my friends after my faithful, wholehearted, serving, obedient. Man, dude, what kind of a heart is that? Listen, if I had somebody serving me like that, I wouldn't want them serving me. Right? An attitude of, well, I never once sinned against you. And you're sell- you want me to pat you on the back? You want me to celebrate the fact that you've been doing what you're supposed to be doing? You know? Come on, what kind of an attitude is that? Oh, man, but he's such a merciful father. He goes out and he pleads with him. 
Verse 30, he's still complaining. As soon as this son of yours who's devoured your livelihood with harlots uh, comes, you kill him, give him the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, my son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so he's, Jesus is pleading with these Pharisees who hate him. Who are saying, who does Jesus think he is? To hang out with and receive and eat with sinners and publicans, tax collectors. And Jesus is saying, you've always been with me. Isn't that a reward in and of itself? You guys have the word of God. You guys have the truth of God. You guys have had the privilege of serving me all this time. And everything that I have is yours. Shouldn't we celebrate? He was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. So I look at this and I, I think of how incredibly our Heavenly Father loves us. I don't know. There's a lot of people here in the story. I don't know which one you most identify with. But he never gave these teachings so that we would hear them and walk away and not do anything with it. He gave these teachings to minister to our hearts. And if you're the kind of person that sits here and thinks, well, at least I'm not as bad as these other terrible people around me. Ah, but I got to go serve. I got to go do this. I got to go serve the Lord. Man, you get to be in the presence of the Lord. You think that's a small thing? Everything that he has is yours. Is that a small thing? And you guys have all kinds of a legacy. I was saved when I was five. My mom was saved when she was 25. She was raised in a family that didn't know Jesus. And some of you here have been raised and are still living in a family that doesn't know Jesus. But some of you, maybe you've been raised in a household that has taught you the truth. You've had the truth in front of you your whole life. And you could see that and despise it. Just utterly think it's nothing. And think, God hasn't treated you right. At the end of this story, there's two sons. There's one son that is coming towards his father. And the son that's approaching his father, he knows two things. My God, my father, sorry, is good. And my father is merciful. And then you've got another son that is standing outside and refusing to come to his father. And he thinks, my, God, my father is unfair, and he isn't good, good enough to me. So, what's my heart? Do I recognize that I don't deserve anything? Do I recognize that God is more gracious and merciful to me than I deserve? Am I coming to him and asking for repentance? Or am I sitting outside thinking, he should come to me? <laughs> you know? I think it would be right for us to come to him. So I don't know how George or Jerry is going to close, but um, I pray that if you have a decision that you need to make in your heart, that you'd make it tonight. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for how gracious and merciful and, and loving you are, God. I thank you for how much you love everyone that's here. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to, um, 
Help us, Lord, to respond to you, God. Be glorified in this time, in this night. In Jesus' name, amen.